so our question for this morning to consider, the title is, Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? And it's a great question, but it's actually not one that's that easy to answer. Uh, And it's actually one that I only discovered recently took the church a long time to get to grips with. Um, They were for a long time preoccupied in the early centuries of the church, not with the question, who is the Holy Spirit, but with the question, who is Jesus? Now, if we want to know who is Jesus, well, we just come to Alpha, it's week two, isn't it? Who is Jesus? And we find out. But in the early centuries of the church, they spent a long time trying to find out who is Jesus. They were confused about it because since the dawn of time, the people of God had been monotheists. Uh, so, you know, th- there's not many gods, there's one God. And they, they repeated the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. One God. Okay, so, but then Jesus, the promised Messiah, comes along and says, well, I'm God. The Father sent me. Everyone was saying, well, ha- hang on a minute. Are you the Father? No, I'm not the Father, but I'm God. And yet he also said, I and the Father are one. Uh, so that kind of gave them a little bit of a headache. Well, how can Jesus be God? And they went backwards and forwards. And is he God? Is he man? Is he, you know, is he only God and not man? Or only man and not God? And they were just very confused about it. And so um, they kind of came up with various different solutions to how can this problem get solved. And most of those were sort of declared to be heretical. Um, but in the end, after 300 years, 325 AD, they came up with the doctrine of the Trinity. Eventually, they sort of articulated it in what we have today as the creed. And this is what they come up with. Here it is on the screen. Just to sort of get it clear, how does this all work? And so they started off, you can see it's in three parts. We believe in one God, the Father, almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible. Okay, that was never up for debate. We always knew about that. But now, look. One Lord Jesus Christ, and there it is, all the kind of theology that they'd worked out. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the only begotten Son of God, you know, God of God, light of light, the incarnation, and so on. He was crucified, died, was buried, rose again, and is coming back. Okay, so there we go. <laughs> God the Father, and we also believe in Jesus Christ, and then that's where it finished. Look at the last line, and in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Full stop. So they didn't have any, nobody ever sort of really just went, until some bright spark in the fourth century was like, hmm, and who is the Holy Spirit? They asked our question, which we're coming up to this morning. And basically, then it started a whole load more questions. Well, who is this Holy Spirit? And eventually, they had to amend the creed. They spent the rest of the fourth century coming up with loads of things to say about that. And then, and then they came up with, here's another, they amended it. And then they got all that extra stuff. And so it took took them kind of the fourth century to work out, you know, the Holy Spirit. Well, he's the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified and so on. So that was their question. Who is the Holy Spirit? And that's our question for this morning. How did they work it out? How did they find out who the Holy Spirit is? And... I wonder what you said. It's interesting that what they did is what we're about to do, which is they went to the Bible. They went to Scripture. Now, that is interesting, I think, because I think we automatically know that the Holy Spirit is something to do with our experience. The Holy Spirit is to do with our experience of God. So you might have thought, oh, we want to find out who this Holy Spirit is. Well, all the theologians can go off and climb a mountain uh, or go and sit in their chapel and pray, come Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will show us who he is. But they didn't do that because they probably would have all disagreed or come up with something different. What they did was come back to the scriptures for the reason that we're about to see, that in our passage for this morning, if you've got John 14 there, you'll see that one of the things that the Holy Spirit was given to do 
was inspire the authoritative and accurate uh, New Testament representation of what Jesus did and said and taught. So if you've got that, look at verse 26. Jesus promises. Now we're jumping in here to the passage we're going to read, and it's a snapshot. It's, uh, it's, they're in the upper room. So John chapter 14 is part of what's known as the upper room discourse, because it's a discourse that took place in the upper room, and it's, all, it's a long section of John's gospel, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, is in the upper room. They've had the last supper, they've shared the bread and wine, Jesus has washed their feet, he's about to be arrested and go to the cross. And there's this amazing long section where Jesus is talking with his disciples and giving him his final things that he's going to say before he goes to the cross. And that's the, the section that we're jumping into now. And as part of that, verse 26, he says to the disciples, the advocate, the Holy Spirit... Whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. So here Jesus gives this promise and he says, well, look, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And do you ever read the Bible and sometimes just wonder, how on earth do they remember everything? You know, how have they got this, you know, five chapters of this, you know, amazing upper room discourse? How do they remember everything that Jesus said? Well, actually, here it says... The Holy Spirit was going to be the one who would teach them all things, remind them of everything he'd said to you. So there's a sense in which, well, the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us today and reminds us. But the promise was originally given to the disciples, those who were gathered there, including John, who wrote this, was there. And Jesus said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to inspire. They didn't know they were going to write the Bible. But actually, that was part of the Holy Spirit's work, was to inspire what we're reading this morning. And so that's why it was so important, as they worked out who the Holy Spirit was, for them to come back to the New Testament, and that's what we're going to do right now. So after a rather sort of long-winded introduction, let me read the whole thing uh, from, from verse 15. If you've got the same chapter headings as me there, it says, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to read a bit of this. Remember, this is in the upper room. So Jesus says, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, the other Judas, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus replied, Well, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them. We will come to them, make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear, they're not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I've spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. I love this verse. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. 
So there's so much. Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, there's so many ways you could answer the question, and there's no way we can say everything this morning, and that's why we've got a whole series. We're going to find out more about who the Holy Spirit is in the coming weeks. What I want to do is just to focus on who does Jesus say the Holy Spirit is here in this passage? And I'm afraid I haven't come up with a very sort of snappy headings. I've got a bit of a definition. As I say, it's not an exhaustive definition, but I think it's what's going on here. And it's in three parts. We'll go through it. And as I, I don't expect anyone to remember it or memorize it or anything like that, but hopefully it will just help you, help you to sort of paint a portrait of who the Holy Spirit is. And the first bit of the definition is coming up behind me. Here it is. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God with us. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God with us. The Holy Spirit is a person. And that might sound a little bit obvious in some ways to say the Holy Spirit is a person, but actually it's really important that we know that our question that we're thinking about this morning is not what is the Holy Spirit, it's who. Who is the Holy Spirit? Because sometimes I think people talk about the Holy Spirit as a thing, as an it, you know, and actually, if all we had were some of the metaphors for the Holy Spirit that the Bible gives us, the Bible gives us metaphors for how do we understand the Spirit? And we have some of them last week. If you were with us, Emily was talking about the Holy Spirit as wind and fire at Pentecost. That was the, the picture of the Holy Spirit that was given. But if all you had was that, then you might be forgiven for thinking that the Holy Spirit is some kind of impersonal force, like gas or electricity. But actually, no, the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. Verse 17, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's the third person of the Holy Trinity. He's a person who can help us, verse 16. The advocate's going to help you, as we've already said. The, the, the Holy Spirit teaches, verse 26. He will teach you all things. He will remind you things. I mean, a thing can't teach or remind in, in the way the Holy Spirit can. If you read the rest of the New Testament, you see he has personal characteristics and qualities. He can make decisions, the Holy Spirit. Acts 15, the apostles decided it would seem good to the Holy Spirit and to us to do X, Y, and Z. The Holy Spirit can be grieved or lied to. The Holy Spirit is a person, God's personal presence with us. The personal presence of God with us, verse 16. Jesus promises, I'm going to send you the advocate to help you and be with you. Verse 17, you know him, for he lives with you. Verse 23, second half of it, my father will love them. We will come to them and make our home with them. Do you know the personal presence of God with you. I can remember this sort of penny drop moment for me. I was all alone in the house. I was kind of um, having a quiet time. I was reading my Bible. I was reading a book or something, sat on the sofa. And I just remember just having this revelation. I thought, gosh, no, God the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He's a person. The Holy Spirit is a person, and he's here with me. And I had this realization that here I am sat on the sofa, and I'm not alone. God is with me. I think I was flopped on the sofa, sort of sat up, realized that God is here. His Spirit is with us. He, the Holy Spirit, is with us. 
And one of the reasons why this is such a key passage for understanding the Holy Spirit is because there's a name, a title which is given in this passage, which is uh, unique. It's, well, it comes five times in the New Testament, and four of them are in this upper room discourse. Two of them were in the passage we just read. Did you notice there was a repeated title of the Holy Spirit? Verse 16, Jesus calls him the advocate. Verse 25, he says, all this I've spoken to you with you while I'm still with you, but the advocate whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things. The advocate. The other two references in this passage are 15, verse 26. When the advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, the advocate. And 16, verse 7. Very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the advocate. Sounds like a John Grisham novel. The old versions used to call him the comforter, which sounds a bit like a duvet, I think, but the advocate maybe is a bit better, but comfort sounds quite nice, doesn't it? But actually, in Elizabethan English, comfort, you know, fort to, uh, to, is to strengthen, fortify. So the, comfort, the, the comforter is the one who comes alongside you to strengthen you, and that's what an advocate does. If you're there, someone's advocating for you, they're next to you, they're with you, they're strengthening you. And so the, the word sometimes gets translated in different ways. The original Greek word is paraclete, which is not the nice little green birds um, flying around Hyde Park. Those are parakeets. But the paraclete, that's the word in the New Testament, which is this four references, it comes here. And, and what it means is the one who's called alongside, para next to, and cleat uh, comes from the verb to call. The one who's called alongside. At the moment, Hannah and I take it in turns um, to, the alarm goes off and we go th- next door and wake little Fred up, uh, who, Fred is 10 months old, and I'd say about nine mornings out of 10, that is just the highlight of the day. It's just the most joyful moment, because Fred, I mean, I should have put a picture of him, but he is just amazingly sort of, I'm biased, obviously, but he is objectively quite cute as a baby, basically. He's just so, he's sweet and smiley and happy and full of laughter and giggles, and I swoop in there and open the curtains, and he's just laughing and giggling, and I pick him up, have a cuddle, and he gives me a little kiss. But every so often, uh, I'll go to unzip him out of his sort of sleeping bag thing and to change his nappy. (laughs) And there's been, let's, let's say, a breach and the sleeping bag is just full of pain and misery. And I'll go on now. And I'll say, and I'm ashamed to say, but what I do is I'll say, my love, <laughs> I think this is a two-man job. And Hannah will come skipping through. And, you know, just her presence as she comes alongside me, gives me strength. I don't know why that's the first example, an illustration that came to my mind, but... But at the Holy Spirit, he is a bit like that. He's the one who's called alongside. The Holy Spirit is the one who's called alongside to what? Well, that's the second part of our definition. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God with us. Next slide. Making known the Father's love. That's, the Holy Spirit does many things. And we're going to hear about them in the weeks to come. But what he does, one of the first things he does, the, pre- the personal presence of God with us, making known the Father's love. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He's there to reveal, to manifest, to make known the love of the Father for us. Look at verse 18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. In other words, 
Those who don't know the love of the Father. Verse 23, second half of it. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father. Verse 23. My Father will love them. And we will come to them and make our home with them. And that is what the Holy Spirit comes to do. In fact, all of this section, it's Jesus promising the Holy Spirit. But if you've got, if you can scan up, if you've got a Bible open to verse 8, you'll see that the entire, this is one response to Philip's question. In verse 8, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus goes, what are you talking about? Show us the Father. It's been doing the whole time. Been three years with you. Showing you the Father. That's Jesus' ministry was all about revealing the love of the Father. If, if, I mean, that's how John's Gospel starts. Chapter 1, verse 18, the great famous prologue. It says, no one has ever seen God. Anyone seen God here? No. But the one and only Son, who is himself God, the second person of the Trinity, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. That's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to make known the love of the Father. In fact, this great upper room discourse finishes the great high priestly prayer in chapter 17. Jesus finishes off this section by praying to the Father. He prays, verse 25 of chapter 17, righteous Father, though the world doesn't know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me and I have made you known to them. And will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. That's what Jesus is all about. He's been making known the Father's love. And imagine being the disciples in this moment. They know Jesus is going. How must they have felt awful? Because Jesus has been this. Actually, that definition has fit Jesus, hasn't it? Jesus, for these disciples, has been the personal presence of God with them, making known the Father's love. And yet, Jesus says, I'm going, because in his incarnation, in flesh and blood, Jesus' ability to make known the Father's love was restricted because he can only be in one place at one time, can't he? Which is why, 16 verse 6, he said, look, you're filled with grief because I've said these things. They're upset. He said, I'm going. Oh, no, they must feel awful. The presence of God is going. But no, he says, it's for your good that I'm going. How can it be for, they're thinking, how can it be for our good? Because unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The spirit. It's amazing. Amazing that God has chosen to do this in his plan of salvation. Because this yeah, I mean, we know particularly well, don't we, the pain of physical separation from our loved ones. We know what that's all about. And we've been saying things like, I'm with you in spirit. It's nonsense. We're not with them in spirit. We can't do that. But God can. The Lord is here. His spirit is with us, enabling us to know his love. He sent his spirit so that we would know his love. Do you know it this morning? There's knowing like that, and then there's knowing like that. And that's what the Holy Spirit's come to do. There's a scene in one of my favorite movies, Good Will Hunting. Has anyone? Everyone else should watch it. I would show you a clip from it, but it's full of swearing, so we can't have it in church. Go away and watch it. Good Will Hunting. There's an amazing scene where Robin Williams, he's the counselor, and Matt Damon is the kind of the, his person who he's meeting with. He's troubled. Matt Damon's grown up on the wrong side of the tracks. He's, got, you know, he's been beaten 
through his upbringing, he's had a rough childhood, and now he's hardened. And Robin Williams says to him, you know, it's not your fault. And he goes, yeah, I know. He goes, no, no, it's, it's not your fault. He goes, yeah, I know. And he goes, no, you don't. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And he keeps saying it over and over and over, and gradually, and, and Matt Damon just melts is the knowledge goes from there to there, and he just, and then Robin Williams gives him a big hug, and he's going, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, and he's just weeping. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He says, I love you, I love you, I love you. No, I know, I know, God love. no, no, do you know, I'm with you. I'm making known the Father's love for you. And I don't know whether you've had that experience. So I remember the first time I prayed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, in, deliberately in an intentional way, and, no, you know, in a sense, nothing dramatic happened. There were no fireworks. I didn't fall over. I didn't speak in tongues. You know, all of which is great. Maybe that you've experienced that. It didn't happen for me. It was brilliant when that does happen. It didn't happen for me. But what did happen was I was overwhelmed with an, a completely overwhelming emotional knowledge of the love of God. I was a wreck. I was like the character in the movie. I just couldn't, I could hardly speak. I couldn't breathe. I just knew. I knew God loves me. Holy Spirit does many things, loads of other things as well, but that's what he does. He's the personal presence of God with us, making known the Father's love, and thirdly, and briefly, enabling obedience to Jesus. And uh, you might have spotted that throughout this passage, actually woven alongside these promises of the presence of God making known his love, are these rather challenging calls to obedience all the way through. Verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And Judah says, well, look, why, how come there's going to be an exclusivity about this? How, what, you're going to show yourself to us, but not everyone. You know, he can't fathom it. If Jesus, the revelation of God, surely everyone's going to love that. Surely everyone will look at Jesus and go, yes. But actually, no. Verse 23, Jesus replies, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will come to them, we will come to them, make our home with them. But anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. He's almost apologetic, isn't he? End of verse 24. These words you hear, they're not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. They're incredibly challenging words. One writer said that Jesus' words here are polarized, blunt, demanding, and forceful. And I think I agree. They are incredibly forceful words because what Jesus does is he makes an unbreakable connection between encountering the Father's love, being filled with the Spirit, Loving Jesus and obeying Jesus' commands. Verse 21, he look at, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. He doesn't leave any room for encountering the Spirit but disobeying Jesus. There's an unbreakable connection between love for Christ and obedience and allegiance to following Christ. Which would be kind of daunting, wouldn't it? 
would be kind of daunting if it was just down to us to do that in our own strength. We can't. You know, Jesus says, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. Okay, ah, I can't. But verse 16, I will ask the Father, he will give you another advocate to help you. And so part of what the Holy Spirit does, yes, the Holy Spirit is revealing God's love to us. The Holy Spirit is enabling us to follow in his footsteps and obey his commands, which ultimately, after all, is simply to love, isn't it? What's the most important command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus just reminded them that in the previous chapter, 13, verse 34, Jesus has just said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So love one another. If you love me, keep my commands. So the Holy Spirit enables obedience to Jesus and empowers us to live for him. So do you know him? Do you know the Holy Spirit? Have you encountered the Holy Spirit? Why don't we just spend a couple of moments? I don't know where this lands with you, 